Good morning. morning. (laughs) Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful for your love, for your faithfulness, for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that you will join us, enlighten our minds, empower us to fulfill the purpose you have for us at this time in history. And as we study today about the death of Christ, we ask that you will lead our minds into greater uh, insights and appreciation for what you have done for us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. 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 So we're doing lesson number seven in the quarterly on death, dying, and the future hope. And the title of the lesson this week is Christ's Victory Over Death. And if you look in the Sabbath lesson, in the first two paragraphs of the lesson, this is what the first two paragraphs say. Central to the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Paul made this point very powerfully when he wrote, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ did not rise, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then though... Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that was the end of the quote. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 16, and 18. Going on with the, uh, with the paragraph. We will look at this in more detail next week. Thus, no matter all the emphasis Paul put on Christ's death and how important it was, for I determined to not, not to know anything among you except Christ and him crucified. And then the lesson goes on to say, it really does us no good apart from his resurrection, what Christ has done, him crucified, does us no good apart from his resurrection, the lesson says. That's how crucial the resurrection of Jesus is to the entire Christian faith and the plan of salvation. So the question is, why why is this true? Why is it true? I can't hear you. So speak up. Yeah, why is it true? If our current life were the only life and there was no hereafter, which would be a better way to live this current life? Like Jesus showed us, a life of love, truth, liberty, integrity, honesty, loyalty, kindness, mercy, grace, or a life of fear, selfishness, exploitation, villainy, and crime? Which would be a better life if there was no hereafter? Even if there's no hereafter, is it still a better life? Then why does the crucifixion of Christ do us no good if there's no resurrection, if the Christ-like life is still a better life? Why would it do us no good? Following my question here? No, no. It would do us no good beyond this life. Pardon? It would do us no good beyond this life. Okay, but but that's not what they said. That's the point I'm making. There's what you've just said is 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 yes, it would do us no good beyond this life. But they the point of the lesson is it would do us no good at all. Would the death of Christ do us any good if there if he if there was no resurrection if he didn't rise? But wouldn't you still feel better if you did what was right and you weren't, like, nasty? (laughs) That's the point, yes. Our life would be better. Right. So Christ's way is the best way. Then why didn't Paul say that even if Christ were not to have risen from the dead, living like Christ is still the best way to live? Why didn't he say that? That would take our hope of eternity away from us. Remember, he wrote, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. 
you are still in your sins. So what is he saying? And I want you to see the connection, why I'm asking this question. If Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then we're still in our sins. And if we're still in our sins, it's not possible for us to live a righteous life. While it's true what I said, it's a better life, even if there's no resurrection, to live like Christ What enables us to live like Christ is receiving a new heart and right spirit from Christ, which means his victory over the cause of death, which is the sin infection that Adam gave us, that victory at the cross is the same victory that resulted in his resurrection, is the same victory that gives us a better life here. So if he didn't rise, he didn't beat the enemy. He didn't overcome sin. And if he didn't overcome sin, we can't live a better life here and now. That's why it's futile. Does that make sense now? Yeah. Yeah. And this is why Jesus said that, that he came that we might have life more abundantly. Not just more abundantly in the future life, but life more abundantly in this life. As we partake of his victory, we actually have a more abundant life now, don't we? I can tell you my life is so much more full and rich and meaningful and, and peaceful, having followed Jesus and brought him into my heart and lived his principles than, than when you're living off of fear and selfishness. Well, that's the way God designed his law, was so that we would, would be happier and more content if we follow his design law that he put in place. Yes. That's exactly right. It's healing. It's restorative. It is the way of, of, of healthiness and happiness. That's exactly right. Sunday's lesson, Matthew uh, asks us to read Matthew 27, 62 to 66. And this is what it, what it reads, uh, Matthew, 22, six, Matthew 27, 62 to 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. What do you learn from this passage? What are the lessons? What does this tell us? What are significant truths in this passage? What does it tell us? The Pharisees liked to project their own uh, malicious design of what they would have done. Oh, I love that. Yes. So they, they projected the idea of, of an intentional deception. Yeah. Okay. Did, does this passage reveal that the enemies of Jesus knew he predicted he would die and rise again? Yes. They knew it. They knew his prediction. Why didn't they believe it? I mean, these are people who are Bible believers. They had the stories of the Old Testament about the two girls that rose from the dead, about the dead man's bones being thrown in with excuse me, the dead man being thrown in with Elijah, Elisha touching his bones and rising again. They had, they had the story of Moses being resurrected. Uh, uh, what, why didn't they believe Jesus was going to rise again? Evidently they did. I think deep in the heart they did. I think they did believe it. Well, Caiaphas, the high priest, was a Sadducee. 
And the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Paul was a Pharisee. If you remember, there was constant argument. This was two theological schools. This wasn't just about only Jesus. This was about politics. This was about power. This is about ego. Uh, the, the, the Sadducee sect had been teaching for generations there's no such thing as a resurrection. Jesus having resurrected Lazarus undermines their authority, their power. The Pharisees, like Paul, believed in the resurrection. And so these were debating back and forth. Now, if the Sadducees would acknowledge that there is a resurrection, Lazarus was raised, Jesus is going to be raised, if they would acknowledge that, having led the people down this other theological trail for their entire existence, what happens to their position, their power, their authority? Yes. And have you seen people in the world today who will do anything not to lose their position, their power, and their authority? Yes. They've taken a position. That position is not based on evidence, not based on fact. It's contrary. It's false. But they've gone public with their position. And rather than correct themselves with when new data comes along, new evidence, they instead work to obfuscate anything that would show them to be wrong, including destroying people that would bring truth to light. Do you see this process through history? So the Sadducees were invested in denying the truth because it validated um, the truth about Jesus, number one, but it invalidated their entire theological school. Have we had any, I don't know, tensions in our own experience that people have a certain theological school, and that school is not really borne out and supported by evidence-based thinking, and the people who hold to that school will do anything to silence the evidence that their view is wrong. So they didn't have mindsets, that, so these people who crucified Christ, why didn't they believe it? They knew he said it, they didn't believe it because it went against their philosophy, it went against their school, it went against their authority, it would lose, they would lose power. But they also didn't have minds that valued truth, they valued their own, and this is the minds of religious cults. If you look how religious cults work, cults do not work on the principle of let's, let's move forward in the truth. They work on the principle of indoctrination and doing what they have to to hold whatever truth would undermine the cultish views at bay to retain the cult leaders in power. And the Bible describes the people who are lost at the very end of time in Thessalonians. This is one of the, the, the variables or character traits of those who are lost. It says in Thessalonians, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved, unquote. It's not about having factual correctness. That's not what the Bible is talking about. They did not love the truth. It's not that the Bible, the Bible didn't say they did not have the, the various ten horns of Daniel identified to the correct nations properly, therefore they can be saved. No, it's not about factual data correction being correct. It's about loving truth. And the people who actually are saved have hearts that love truth, and they're willing to be corrected. They're willing to grow in it. So my view is that when Christ returns and all the saved are meeting him in the clouds, there isn't one person in the saved group who correctly knows every detail of Scripture in its fullest sense. 
we will all have elements to be corrected upon. But what we will have all the saved will have hearts that love God, love each other, and love truth, and are eager to be corrected with a better explanation, better understanding, and better awareness of what is actually true. The lost are those who love their perspectives, their theologies, their power, their position more than they love the truth, and they'll do whatever they have to to prevent the truth from embarrassing them or removing them from some position of authority. Yes, that's all hand up. What happens to their mind? I mean, they're rejecting truth right in front of them. What happens to a person's mind? Do they actually believe their lies? Do they... I'm glad you asked. This is, this is partly the law of exertion. Uh, if you exercise something, it gets stronger. Initially, people who do this do not believe the lies. But as you state the falsehood and you reject the truth, you actually make neurological changes in your brain. And over the course of time, people do come to believe what they initially knew to be, be false. And they convince themselves and they come to believe the falsehood, even though initially they didn't. So that's true. They, they, they become self-deceived, in other words. That's right. And then eventually they destroy the faculties that are capable of recognizing the truth. And they're no longer even, ha and if you probably met people like this, they have such, and the reason why they become resistant is because at some level, there's a truth that if they accept it, causes them guilt or shame or embarrassment or humiliation. It costs them some emotional negativity that they don't want to face. And so that truth is too offensive to them, so they won't accept it. Is there a way to reach these kind of people? No. No. Could Jesus reach Judas with the truth? No, evidently not. Jesus just didn't have enough truth on his side. He just didn't have enough compassion, didn't have enough love. He didn't know how to speak in the proper ways. If he'd only gone to maybe a finishing school, he could have he could have reached Judas. So what you're saying no. is they've conditioned their mind so much that they come to a point where there's no turning back. Same with Caiaphas and the leaders who crucified Christ. Same with Pilate. It wasn't that Jesus had a deficiency of truth. There was no one who brought more truth in human history to bear on hearts and minds than Jesus. But some of those people could not be reached. And this is what happens. You can persist in, in, in the lies and the selfishness so long you destroy within you the faculties. So you should be asking, if we use the metaphor of the Bible for truth, which is light, light is a metaphor for truth, can someone go out and engage in behaviors that destroy their eyeballs? Whether it's staring at the sun, welding without, without protection, and they destroy the actual cells that actually process photons, they can't, and they become blind. Once they become blind, if you were to say to me, isn't there something we can do to help them see the beauty of a rainbow? Mm, wow, wow. Tim? No, there's not. They've destroyed the faculties or the abilities, the various various uh, resources of substrate that God has given us that is sensitive to the movements of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth and love. And that's what sin does. Sin sears the conscience, hardens the heart, warps the character, and destroys the faculties of the mind that are sensitive. When, we, when, you, when you reject truth over and over again, and this is what the Bible calls hardening the heart. And this is how Pharaoh's heart was hardened. God presented truth to Pharaoh in ways that was most profound to any other ancient ruler 
Over and over again, this truth came, and Pharaoh was initially convicted of the truth. But after the pressure was removed, Pharaoh's selfishness, ego, pride, uh, power, all the earthly uh, lusts and passions took over, and he rejected the truth and made some excuse and went back the other way over and over again. And he persisted and persisted until he came to the point that his heart was fully hardened. And that's what and that's what happens. And at that point, there's no more that God can do because no amount of truth, no amount of love will have any impact on somebody who has permanently destroyed those faculties. And if God were to somehow reverse history and and resensitize those faculties, their character has not changed. So they would simply do the same decisions with truth over again and just resear their their heart again. It's like an alcoholic who has no desire for recovery and destroys their liver, and you give them a liver transplant, they just destroy that liver with more alcohol. Right. Wow. 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 Hey, Tim. Yep. I think I would add a caveat to what you say. I, I agree, but I think that we as humans don't know the degradation of someone's mind fully. Uh, you know, I think of Manasseh. I think, you know, that he turned to God. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he turned to God, and some people may have prejudged them and say, those, those guys are way too far over the, too, too far gone, and they weren't. And so, no, that's well said. No, I, so thank you for that clarification. Yes, it is not our, we can't read hearts and minds, and we cannot tell if somebody's crossed that line and have gone beyond the point of, of, of being receptive and responsive to the spirit of truth and love. We, we don't know that question for sure, and it's not our place to make that. So we continue to love our enemies and, and pray for those who persecute us, and, and we continue to, to be representatives of truth and love, but, but uh, the reality is there are some that go beyond that, but we don't know who they are. You're exactly right. Yeah, well said. Thank you for that. So this idea of what the Pharisees were doing in Christ's day, rejecting truth, hardening their hearts, uh, uh, clearly knew what Christ don't want, don't want to accept it, don't want to consider the possibility. Do we see the same mindset today that, that there are groups that are actively purposely working against truth. They know they're working against truth. They they engage in agencies to censor, to silence, to deplatform, to suppress, to to propagandize, and they know they're doing it. They actually go to school to learn how to twist and bend things to their advantage. We see this happening all over the world. Uh, cults do it, communism does it, all communist powers do it. Every satanic system always does this because Satan's Entire government is based on falsehood, and truth destroys falsehood. So Satan's systems never embrace openness and truth. They always seek to to control the information stream in ways that will shade it towards Satan's advantage and keep absolute truth out. So what did the scheming of the Jewish religious leaders going to Pilate, we read the text, what did it actually result in, though? They schemed, they plotted, they planned, they projected, they, they uh, took the, the, the detachment of soldiers, they sealed the tomb. What did it actually result in, though? Nothing. Well, it put light on the fact that when Jesus was raised, it was a supernatural thing, and... Uh, more were risen with them to go around and tell that Jesus was risen, that they were risen too. So all of their attempts to try and prevent what they would have done 
only gives gives greater historical certainty to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, more witnesses. More witnesses, but they affirm it. Having the soldiers there with this with the sealed tomb affirms this. So after the resurrection, the Roman soldiers had a story to tell. Their firsthand testimony of what they experienced when an angel came with overwhelming glory. They pass out. They wake up with to an open tomb and and know Jesus. And we read about this account, if you look in Monday's lesson, Matthew 28, 11 to 15, reads the following. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders uh, had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated circulated among the Jews to this very day. What do we learn from this description? From this account, does it sound like the priests believed that Jesus rose from the dead or believed that the soldiers fell asleep and the disciples stole him away. What do you think the, the priest believed after the, the soldiers told their story? That they from this account. Get your mind around that. If the chief police, a priest did not believe the account of the Roman soldiers, if they actually believed the Roman soldiers were negligent, fell asleep, and the disciples did steal the body away, if that's what they ta- thought happened, what would they have likely have done? Executed those soldiers. Yeah. Would David have gone to Pilate and demanded the soldiers be punished? Isn't that right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And if if they'd have gone to Pilate and demanded they be punished for negligence, what would have resulted in that? What would have been the process before the soldiers were punished? Investigation. Oh, yeah. yeah. An investigation and a trial. Pilate would have come back out to his judgment seat. Yeah. There would have been a public trial. And the Roman soldiers would have given their story publicly wow. about what they went through. And there would have been the opportunity to call witnesses. All those other people who saw Christ resurrected could have been called to give their testimony at a public trial that Jesus was alive. And if this would have happened, what would have happened to the Jewish leadership that sought the death of Christ? Yeah, if you want to know, go back and read Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole speech, it's very long. I'm going to read the last three verses of that speech uh, here in, in Acts 7, 51 to 53. But, but I'm going to suggest to you that what Stephen is saying here, if if they would have had a public trial of the Roman soldiers, and the Roman soldiers gave their testimony, and they brought in the witnesses who saw Christ and gave their testimony. The whole countryside would have been saying what Stephen said. And this is what Stephen said to the, about the religious leaders. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your forefathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And you have received you who who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. <laughs> this is what Stephen said. And and you can see why they took him out and stoned him. But but if this public testimony of the soldiers, if this testimony of the soldiers had been made public and then verified by the witnesses. 
I suspect the the entire community, the 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 popular opinion would have swung just into Stephen's camp. And this is why they did believe Jesus rose, and it terrified them because they didn't want to repent. They were still operating on the fear and selfishness, survival met. What can we do to survive? How can we protect ourselves? And so they bribed the soldiers and then told this lie. Yes, hands, question some more. Yeah, yeah. it said that some of the soldiers, it didn't say all of them. So I'd like to think that some of the soldiers were convinced and didn't go with the other ones because there was a lot of soldiers. We don't have a record, though, of any telling. We don't have any record of any of the soldiers that were at the tomb keeping guard of going out and giving a witness, do we? Well, it says some of the soldiers went to I understand that, but do we have a record of anybody going to Pilate and giving the true story and Pilate uh, investigating and, 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 the, and, the, and a report going to Caesar of a man who died and rose again? Or uh, do we have a, a biblical account of, of Roman soldiers giving testimony other than the centurion at the cross? But we're talking now three days later at the, at the, at the tomb. We don't have any record of, of, that I know of, do we? No. Does anybody know of a record of a Roman soldier that was there giving a positive testimony? No, just my imagination. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm not. I, I would like that. I would like that uh, that uh, record. I would like to read that. That would be great. <laughs> you know, you got to think of the mindset. I think you think of the mindset of those soldiers. Think think if you were one of those soldiers. Yeah. You were there. A man just rose from the dead, and you took money to lie about that. Hmm. Oh, wow. I mean, think of the impact. What impact would it have for you to have an angel with glory come and and then and and you're at a tomb and it's and it's the stones rolled away and, and the dead man rises? Do you think that would be outside the norm of your daily experience in such a way that you might not want to take a bribe to hide it up and cover it up? Did they see that or weren't they asleep? Did they witness that? Yeah. Saw when they woke up, right? So they witnessed the angel coming. They witnessed the stone rolled away when they woke up and the tomb was empty. Yeah, well, that's true, yeah. For sure. But this is what the unrepentant always do. They always make an excuse and try to put it in ways that make them feel comfortable. Do you remember on the night of Jesus' betrayal... When Peter took out the sword, cut off the ear, and Jesus flashed some divinity, the, the, the detachment had fallen out, and he takes the ear, picks it up, puts it back on the guy's head. Boom. You remember that story? And, and all those witnesses that watched that saw the little flash of glory, saw the miraculous healing. What did they do? They still tied him back up and took him to be crucified. Had no impact. None. You can imagine they were probably doing what the Pharisees did in other places of Scripture where the Pharisees immediately accused Jesus of doing it through the power of Beelzebub. He's a sorcerer. He's a magician. He's doing it through evil powers. They take the same data and they turn it in ways that validate them rather than being converted by it. That's what evil and what, what uh, the unrepentant always do. When you have the mind of the Romans watching the Jewish nation, they thought they probably were crazy. You know how they- well, that's another, that's another aspect of it as well. Uh, the mindset of the ancients were the more powerful gods are in charge. 
we, you, you're subordinate to us. We occupy your land. Our gods are more powerful than yours. So we're not going to take anything your gods do seriously anyway, because our gods are more powerful. This is all the more evidence that miracles really do not oftentimes have a big effect on a change in a person's heart. And that's probably why Christ didn't employ that tactic often as as we all seem to feel like we want him to. You know? We think we think a yeah. miracle is gonna be something huge that's gonna persuade thousands, but an ear being reattached is quite a miracle. A angel coming from heaven and rolling stones away and a resurrection is quite a miracle and it just has very little effect and it makes me think in our world today that our hope for future miracles having an effect on those around us is kind of grim to think that they won't that people won't turn well, so Jesus this is a great point What can you prove with a miracle? Can you prove your position is true? Imagine being at a church board meeting. You're one of the elders of the church. You're in a board meeting. They're having a discussion about where we're going to spend some money. There's a disagreement, which I know never happens on a board meeting. (laughs) And and somebody says... um, and there's a person in, in the board meeting that, that has to walk with a cane because they've had childhood polio and, and, uh, and they have a, a lifelong disability. And a member of the church board says, well, the Lord has, 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 has told me this is the direction we go. And to prove to you that this is the right direction, uh, he's told me to heal this brother so-and-so's polio. And, and he walks over and says, in the name of the Lord, be healed. And you, and you see the leg grow out and the miraculous healing take place and, and, the, and all the deformity goes away. What do you think would happen at that church board meeting? <laughs> well, Satan can put a disease. But, but does that miracle prove that, in fact, the position... No. Being advocated is from the Lord. No, no. It does not. Miracles can be counterfeited. Satan can do varieties of miracles, and he often does through various agencies. And he will do many more as time unfolds. What Satan can't counterfeit is the truth. He has no truth. Uh, he will uh, have lots of falsehoods presented as truth, but they actually are not true. They're false. And it's harder and harder for people in society today to be able to figure that out because they're being fed a propaganda stream in which there is actually no truth. It's just your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Everybody's truth is truth. Because if you feel one way, it's it's, it's, it's legitimate because that's the way you feel. Uh, and it may be true you feel that way, but just because you feel that way doesn't make it true. And that is what's left out. And so people are being decoupled from objective reality and the design laws of God. And we come back to the actual objective creation of God and how he built things and the way, he, the way reality runs. It gives a real solid platform for being able to differentiate and discern. Tuesday's lesson asks us to read Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one to 53. And this is what it says. 
at that moment, this is the moment of Christ's death on the cross, it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. Split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. So what does the tearing of the veil at the time of Christ's crucifixion reveal? What's the object lesson? Christ taking Satan out of the way. What? Taking Satan out of the way. Okay. So in order to in order to understand the object lesson, we need to understand what the veil represents. And what's commonly taught is that the veil represents the body of Jesus. That's the common view. And it comes out of Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, which reads the following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And because of that text, many people teach that the curtain is the body of Christ. How many have heard that before? Nobody? This is the common view. And therefore, at the cross, Christ was struck. He was our sins replaced on him, and Christ was struck by the Father with the Father's divine justice to punish our sins, to pay the payment of our sins. This is what it's taught, and that was represented in the veil. Let's consider the meaning and the implications, though. By the way, the way the sentence structure is in both English and Greek, that very sentence I just read, the the the, the body can refer to the curtain, or it can refer to the new and living way through the curtain. And so we have to decide when it says by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, is his body referring to the curtain or the new and living way through the curtain? (laughs) That's our decision to make. So let's consider. In the theater of the Old Testament sanctuary, the veil actually was a barrier that blocked much of the Shekinah glory light coming into the holy place from the most holy place that the daily priests in the holy place would, would, would be veiled from seeing. Does that mean it represents the body of Christ? Well, some say yes, because Jesus veiled his life-giving glory with a human body so that his life-giving glory that looks like fire would not destroy those who he came to save. So they say, see, there he veiled his glory. But at the same time as he was veiling his physical glory, the Bible says that Jesus is the light which lightens all men, and that in his prayer in John 17, Jesus says that he brought glory to the Father on earth by revealing the Father's glory, And further, the Bible teaches in Haggai that the temple that Jesus walked in was more glorious than Solomon's temple. But Solomon's temple was not only larger, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, God's Shekinah fiery glory entered it so brightly the priests couldn't enter it that day. But the Bible says that the smaller temple was more glorious without the Shekinah glory. Because why? Because in the life of Jesus, the greater glory was revealed, and that was the glory of his self-sacrificial character. So with, with that in mind, in the great controversy between Christ and Satan, Jesus is the light that lightens all men with the glory of God. 
if we focus only on the physical attributes of God's glory, then we conclude that the veil represents Jesus' body. But if we focus on the great controversy elements that Satan is the father of lies and we need the glory of God's true character revealed to us, then the veil are the lies of Satan that are obstructing the glory of God from reaching us. Do you all follow me? Yes. So that's not quite sufficient yet for us to draw a conclusion because there's an argument meritorious on both sides of that question. But the veil, there's more data. The veil had angels sewn on it. And the Bible reveals that the angels are ministering spirits, helping us, and there is a battle between angelic forces. You can read about that in Daniel 10 and other places. But even though the angels are there to help us, angels are not able to open a way through what Satan has done back into God's presence. So they're battling on our side to help us, but they can't get rid of the lies of Satan and open the way back. For me, what the clarifying point is this. If you look at the Old Testament sanctuary service, the only element of the entire structure that God gave them to build that God himself destroyed was the veil. And if you and it was destroyed at the moment of Christ's death. And if you take that idea and then ask, does the Bible teach us that at the moment of Christ's death that Christ destroyed something? Will, will they link those for us? And what it teaches us is in Hebrews 2.14 that by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And then in 2 Timothy 1.10 it says that he destroys death and brought life and immortality to light. And in 1 John 3.8 it tells us that, that he destroys the devil's work. And the devil has worked to erase the image of God in man and put Satan's image where God's image should be in man. And Christ destroyed that work by, in his humanity, restoring God's image into man. And so when you see what Christ destroyed at the cross, and you link that with the veil being destroyed, which is what God destroyed through the work of Christ, then it becomes very clear to me that the veil represents the obstacles to our reconciliation with God. The way to God is obstructed, but Christ destroyed the obstruction and opens the way back to God. And what is it that obstructs the way? The lies about God that Satan tells and we believe that keep us from knowing him. That's one. And also our own carnal or fallen nature, the sin infection of fear and selfishness within us that Christ destroyed at the cross and restored God's living law and God's character into humanity. Thus, he opens a new and living way. So for me, it becomes very clear that's what, what happened. Questions about that so far? Yes, no? no. So we look at the other side of it. If we take the position... Oh, there was a question. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah go ahead. When the first temple, Solomon's temple, uh, was erected and God's glory came down, or whenever that was, that God's yeah. glory came in that, was that same glory, Shekinah glory, I guess is what you're saying, in the temple of Christ's day? No. When no. did that stop? There's no record that that Shekinah glory, no, the Shekinah glory appeared at the Do Solomon's temple. It did not appear again at the rebuilding of the temple, as far as we have a record of, no. Why is that? <laughs> because I think that the object lesson here is, is what we're teaching. And this is why Haggai said the second temple is more glorious, because the second temple had the living 
living God in human form, uh, living out the law of God. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Uh, Father, I finished the work you've given me to do. I've made you known. I've I've brought glory to you on the earth. Now glorify me as I glorified you, as Jesus prayed. And so we see the glory of God's character revealed fully in Christ, which is the true glory that God wants us to see, not simply might and power, which was at, at Solomon's time. That makes sense. Yeah. So let's look at the other side of the equation, though. I showed you the positive side, how the Bible shows very clearly that Satan's powers were destroyed by Christ at the cross, and it's those powers that actually obstruct our reconciliation with God, and those powers were destroyed, and a new and living way has been opened back to us for God. So we can make a very strong case that the veil represents the lies and our own fallen nature that Christ destroyed at the cross. But let's look at the other side. If we take the other side that, in fact, it represents Christ's body, it actually works against everything in Scripture and teaches a false view of God. Uh, this idea is based on the idea that, uh, that God's law works like human law, and God is the one who must bring punishment to bear upon the sinner, and Jesus took our place, and so the Father had to strike his Son in order to punish the proper punishment to us, and that's why they want it to be his body, because it, if you make it his body, then you have Christ, Father striking down the veil, so the Father struck down his Son, so that makes God the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death for sin, rather than what the Bible teaches, that sin pays its wage, the wage is death, and sin full grown when it brings forth death. So it really misrepresents God's character. It also uh, contradicts the plain testimony of Jesus in Scripture. When on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why are you striking me down? No, no, he didn't say it. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did not lay a hand on his son but separated himself from Jesus, setting Jesus free. He set him free to reap what Jesus as our Savior chose to experience. Jesus was not required to go through the cross. He freely, no one can take my life. I lay it down freely, he said. He said to Peter, when Peter put a sword, put away your sword. I could call 12 legions of angels, but how can I fulfill my purpose and my mission if I do that? I have to go through the cross because I have to reveal the truth. I have to confront the selfishness. I have to overcome in the humanity with God's power of love and trusting my Father. I have to destroy this infection of the species can't be saved. I have to complete this. And so Jesus went through the cross for the purpose of completing the joint mission of the Godhead, which was to destroy Satan and the power of death and, and the uh, work of Satan. He wanted to destroy all of that. And the only way he could do that was as a human, live a sinless life and self-sacrificially give his life at the cross to destroy those elements. And this is why the Father separated from him. Because if the Father doesn't separate from him, the Father is the source of life. He can't die. He can't complete the mission. So the Father pulls back, not as a punishment, not as an affliction, not as I'm dissatisfied, not as you're so offensive now, but because this is a cooperative process where they mutually decide together this is what we have to do in order to accomplish the outcome, which is the destruction of satanic powers and sin. Mm, wow. Mm. Wow. Does the uh, veil uh, being torn top to bottom show that man had nothing to do with seeing God? I mean, it was strictly uh, something that God allowed to happen by tearing it from top to bottom. I love that as well. That's right. It's showing it was top to bottom, meaning that it came from heaven down. Christ came from heaven down to earth. Uh, and coming from heaven down there, he strikes down all of the uh, obstacles and barriers that keep us from God. And it wasn't man uh, working our way up to God. I think that's beautiful. So I think we must reject the idea that the veil represents the body of Jesus and instead conclude it represents the obstacles to our reconciliation. And Jesus has opened a new and living way for us. And I believe Paul actually alludes to this in 
2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And this is, keep in mind what we just described about the veil, represented and the great controversy elements, obstructing our reconciliation, re- reconciliation, keeping us from seeing the light that is uh, the truth about God's glorious character. Keep all that in mind as we read what Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, I think he's describing that veil that gets over the hearts and minds and keeps the glorious truth of who God is from actually bringing us to conversion. And that's what was represented in the sanctuary service, is that veil that is in our hearts and minds of fear, selfishness, and falsehoods about God. And Christ destroyed the lies, and he destroyed in his own humanity the affection of fear and selfishness, and it opens a new and living way for all who are one back to trust. Because we get new hearts and right spirits. And have you not experienced in your own personal journey that when the truth about God brought you to repentance and you surrendered to him, that the power of fear and selfishness was broken over you? Not the temptation with it, but the power of it. The lesson also points out Lesson also points out that many people were resurrected with Jesus, and these individuals who were resurrected were resurrected to immortal life, not like Lazarus, not like the two the the, the resurrections of those two little girls in the Old Testament, or the or the um, the Jairus's daughter and others. Those those were rest, resurrected and died again, but these were resurrected to immortal life and went to heaven with Jesus. Ephesians four eight I think describes this when he said when it describes when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Those captives who were captive in the grave rose free from the power of death and went into heaven with Jesus. But I also think these individuals who were raised with Jesus are described in Revelation chapter 4.4. This is my my view of this. I haven't read anybody else say this, but this is my view. Revelation 4.4, it says, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. You know, the dressing in white is the, is the robe of Christ's righteousness. The crown is the crown of victory that we receive in Christ. Uh, these are not angels. These are not sinless beings from other planets. These are human beings who have been saved. And we know, uh, I like to think at least, at least some of those 24 were the ones who were raised with Jesus in his resurrection and taken to heaven. Now, who might those be? Maybe some were Enoch, Elijah, and Moses. Maybe they're they're three out of the twenty-four. Who are the other twenty-one? Uh, we we're not told. Yeah. Do you have any favorites? Anybody you're rooting for? <laughs> Can you think of some heroes David. from the from the scripture? David, John the Baptist. Yeah, these are some of the ones. Yes, these are some of the ones I listed. I personally don't think Adam and Eve are there. I think Adam and Eve will stay in the grave until the final resurrection. That's my personal view. Nobody said that. Just my personal view, and I have reasons for it. But what about Abel, whose blood called out? Righteous Abel's blood calls out from the ground. Or Noah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It would be interesting. David, somebody said. John the Baptist. To count the people in (laughs) Hebrews 11, 
to see if it equals 25. Oh, I haven't, I haven't thought of doing that. That would be interesting. Yeah. Let's count those people up and see. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I don't know who they are, but don't you think every single one of those 24 uh, of those who are sitting on those thrones in heaven are friends of God, like God described Abraham and Moses? Tim, do you think that the people that they went and visited recognized who they were? Well, you know, that's part of it as well. And I've heard that as well, that these were re these were people who'd lived in, in those, uh, died during that generation so that they could give personal witness because people would have known them. I've heard that as well. Uh, um, but we don't know exactly how many were totally resurrected. And so there, hundreds could have been resurrected, but a, but a few special friends through time might have also come up too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in uh, Wednesday's lesson, gives a long list of people that scripture records saw Jesus after the resurrection. Mary Magdalene, the apostles, the men on the road to Emmaus. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we read the following, starting in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as the first of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and, and that he ra was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. Wow. This is quite a profound historic record. The resurrection of Jesus and that he appeared to so many people personally. As you think about all the people he appeared to, we all are, I think, familiar with Thomas, doubting Thomas, and and having the testimony of his apostle brothers and friends telling him that they've all seen Jesus. Thomas was enthusiastic, happy, I'm all for it, or I, I, I'm not going to believe it until I see it for myself. <laughs> we know it was that, that was his attitude. Put yourself in his position. Do you think he really didn't believe, or do you think his feelings were hurt that he wasn't important enough for Jesus to show himself to? Yeah. I mean, think about that. Uh, you were one of the 12. All the 11 have met him, seen him again. He hadn't seen, you haven't seen him yet. You don't care enough about me, Daddy? You brought all the other kids a Christmas present and you didn't bring me one? <laughs> He had a hard time with miracles when, like, Jesus fed the 5,000. It just may be... Well, I'm just saying that that's a very human position for most of us, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't that how we can get tempted? Don't we find that with Peter after the resurrection? When he says, feed my sheep, and he looks over to John and says, what about him? And Jesus said, it doesn't matter about John. If I want him to live until my return, are you going to do what I've called you to do? So I, I don't know what the motive here was, whether he really doubted or whether whether he uh, just just had a little part of that in there, wanted to wanted to see him for himself. Or maybe it was just that he loved him so much. And you could think about if it was your spouse that had come back and visited everybody on the board, but you. <laughs> And you loved him so much. So maybe you just loved him so much and it hurt so bad he wanted to see him. 
But either way, he, he refused. To, I'm not going to believe unless I see him for myself. And what did Jesus do? How did Jesus meet him? Meet his concern? He, he met him there and he had him touch his wounds. And, and the basis for... Now notice this, because we have the two stories. We have the story of the road, men on the road to Emmaus. On the road to Emmaus, did Jesus reveal who he was and have him touch his wounds there? No, on the road to Emmaus, he, he persuaded those gentlemen by the weight of Scripture. He walked them through the prophecies of what this Messiah would have to suffer. And when they were persuaded on the weight of Scripture, then he revealed himself. But Thomas, he actually showed himself first. He didn't quote Bible verses to Thomas. It's, check, touch my wounds, stop doubting and believe based on what you experience. And why would the difference be? I think the difference would be that Thomas actually already knew the Bible prophecies. He had walked with Jesus closely. He knew Jesus' personal testimony. Uh, He knew what Jesus was supposed to fulfill. And he needed now the validation of the reality of Jesus' presence to confirm that, in fact, it has happened. Tim, do you have any thoughts on Jesus being different after the resurrection versus before because it seems like in scripture a lot of people had a hard time recognizing him well along that line to that question let's read this paragraph this 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 passage of scripture and and, and ask that question so this is uh luke 24 36 to 43 and we'll keep it is there something different after his resurrection um While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Where are you troubled? And why why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He was a vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a question. Don't you think Jesus was concerned about maintaining a vegetarian diet with his new immortal body? I mean, it's quite an interesting story, isn't it? What do you think it's about? I think your point, he must not have looked a lot different, huh? He must not have been flashy like Gabriel when you see an angel coming down from heaven and the prophets are falling on their face because the light's too bright. He certainly must not have looked like the description we get in in the first three chapters of Revelation, where he has fiery eyes and his hair is white, his feet are like a bronze oven, and it certainly must not have been that. Any thoughts? Why do you think he ate the fish? He was hungry. I don't think he ate the fish because he was hungry. Why did he eat the fish? To prove that he was real. He's not a ghost. Yes, exactly. So what does it tell us about God? Think that through. What does it tell us? What, What does he want? How, how far is God willing to 
step down into condescension in order to meet us where we are, to lead us to where he would like us to be. Do you think that fish tasted good to him? Well, not after eating heaven's food. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Uh, He wasn't eating this because he needed nutritional support. He was eating this because the disciples needed uh, the spiritual support. And he ate it to meet them where they were. And God has taken many steps like this to present himself in ways that are, are, are not what he would prefer. I think he would have preferred them to be able to have confidence right then and know and not have to eat that fish. But it's a great, powerful story. It also disabuses us the idea of some of the the, the uh, lies that were going around in the early centuries, that it wasn't a physical Jesus, but it was this mystical, amorphous, spiritual ghost floating around or something. It, it disabuses us of that. No, Jesus rose bodily. One other small point I want to clarify that sometimes where little mythological things can enter Scripture is after his resurrection, Mary Magdalene is the first to meet him after his resurrection, and uh, one of the trans and the the Bible of that the Bible translation of that encounter often leads to a misunderstanding or a myth. And here's how it's often translated. This is out of the New English translation, John twenty verse seventeen. Jesus replied, "Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father." And this translation, it's like this in many versions, has led to the myth that Jesus could not be touched by any sinful human before he ascended and presented his perfect sacrifice to his father to pay for our sins. And if if he would have been touched, he would have been contaminated by the sinner who touched him, and it would have despoiled him of his purity and virtue, and his payment would uh, uh, would have been lost for us. This is mythological, so so Mary couldn't touch him. No, it's actually not what it says. The Greek is, is active presence, and it actually means stop holding on to me, stop clinging, stop going on touching me. Uh, you've got to let me go so I can go back to my father. Now, she was holding on and just clinging to him because she loved him, and he's got, you got to let me go. And so the NIV renders it this way. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. And that's actually really a better translation. So just to be, disabuse yourself of that myth idea. And in Thursday's lesson, which we're not going to get to because we're out of time, uh, you can go look at the notes. And it was about uh, the uh, idea of the wounds that Jesus will carry in his body through all eternity future and the significance of that to all of us. But let's, let's close with, with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for what you have accomplished. We thank you, Jesus, for for coming to earth, for confronting all the lies that were told, for perfectly revealing the truth about yourself and your Father, for overcoming every temptation, for destroying the infection of fear and selfishness and establishing your living law of love back into the humanity and becoming our champion in the second Adam. We ask that the, the Spirit will now... Uh, be poured out to take your victory and reproduce it in us and transform us to be like you, that we can be lights in this world at this time in history, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.